but I'd like to uh, invite up Jerome L. of the Lake Borderline area of Chicagoland region of Narcotics Anonymous to come up here and share his experience, strength, and hope. I'm an addict recovering from the disease of addiction, and my name is Jerome. It's a few things I want to say before I get started, because whenever I share my experience, strength, and hope, I get loud. I get excited. I find it absolutely impossible to share my experience, strength, and hope without getting excited. So the first thing I want to do is, 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 is express my gratitude for your graciousness, your kindness, your hospitality has been second to none. And I'm truly pleased with the way I've been treated. I'm, um, wow! In our 12th step. And I, it works how and why it says that we would do well to remember to ask the God of our understanding to continue to work through us in our effort to carry a message of recovery. In the spirit of that, I'd like to take a moment of silence to ask my God to work through me in my humble effort to carry a message of recovery tonight. A moment of silence. Thank you. Once again, I'm addict recovering from the disease of addiction. My name is Jerome. And as I said earlier, I'm truly grateful to God for the program of Narcotics Anonymous for giving me a life. Because I never, ever, ever thought in my wildest dreams that waking up in the morning, hitting a lick, and copping a bag of dope wouldn't be my very first agenda. And I'm saying that for a reason, y'all. One of the greatest things that the program of Narcotics Anonymous affords us is hope. Not a job. Not the respect of my family back, not a house, not a big bank account, not the girl that I wanted all the time, because with all that stuff and no hope, I'm nowhere. And I was so hopeless when I showed up in this process that all you people could have stood up and told me how great this program was working in y'all's life. And guess what I would have thought? That I would have been the first addict to prove that this program don't work. Look, how many of y'all remember the movie Life? How many of y'all remember Can't Get Right? I labeled myself as Can't Get Right because it didn't make no difference how many times I tried. I would always lose interest in the middle of the race. I had the ability to build up a wonderful life, get a job. Get a house, get a relationship, get the respect of my family back, get all these things, and walk away. I remember being in college. I had 10 classes. I had eight A's and two B's. And in the middle of the class, I walked away. And the school called my mom and begged her to get me to come back to school. 
And the shame and the embarrassment of never finishing nothing wouldn't let me go back. I remember being in recovery and being on a job for, the, for a brief period of time, just a few months. In that little period of time, I had progressed so well that they wanted to promote me to be a supervisor. And I used, and they loved my work so much that they came to the dope spot and found me and said, come back, get in treatment, we'll help you. And the shame and the embarrassment of what I had done wouldn't let me come back. I remember being in this process. I remember getting out of the penitentiary after doing two years and being in treatment for one year and being clean for two years after that. So altogether, I had five years clean before I looked at myself and told myself, just maybe you might be serious this time, Jerome, maybe. I couldn't believe that I would ever be able to stay clean. And y'all let me come in this process and told me, Jerome, we don't care if you ain't got no hope. You can borrow some of mine until you get some. So I'm real grateful to God for the program of Narcotics Anonymous for giving me life. Right? We often talk about the message. We say that the message is that an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live, right? There's another way that our message is verbalized, and it's our just for the day. December the 18th is called the message of our meetings. And it says what we share about how we got here and how we stay here is the real message of our meetings, right? So tonight, I'm going to real simply tell y'all how I got here, how I stay here, and I'm going to go sit down somewhere. And whenever I talk about how I got here, I always start at the same spot, the end of the road. Right? I start there for a reason. Uh, it's a saying they got in my area, they say, play the tape back. Anybody ever heard that one before? I don't play no tape back, y'all. I don't play no tape back because I'm going to tell y'all what I do right now when I watch the tape. I always stop it at the part that was fun. So I don't want to play no tape back because for real, for real, way back in the dark ages, it was kind of decent. But all I need is the Polaroid snapshot at the end of the road. And I'm going to tell you all something else before I share that. You know how they always say that never forget the last time you used? I'm going to tell you all something. The last time I used, I was in oblivion. I was so much in oblivion that the job I have today, now I work for the federal government. For you addicts who think that we can't get a job working with the federal government, I work with the federal government, the Department of Defense, and the Naval Base, Great Lakes Naval Base. Me. And I'm a several-time convicted felon, right? But remembering the last time, I don't remember the last time, y'all. It wasn't until I got my job that they told me what my clean date was. All I knew that it was in the beginning of May. That's all I knew. My clean date is May the 8th, 2002. Right? 
And at the end of the road, I found myself handcuffed to a wall in a jail cell in Cook County Jail in Chicago, praying for God to take my life. And the reason I prayed for him to take my life, because this was my last prayer to him before the transformation happened. I say, God, if this is all that I'm going to do with my life, please don't let me wake up. Because waking up in the morning was the worst thing that happened to me every day. And I was dejected. And I was in despair. And I saw a topic. I saw one of the topics. It said the gift of desperation, right? Let me tell y'all something. I had been in that position several times before. I had been just as desperate as I was that day several times before. And nothing changed in my life. Desperation is only a gift if I respond appropriately to it. I remember using them being very, very desperate. We even have a just for the day reading called the gift of desperation. And inside of it, it says that our insanity had finally risen higher than our wall of denial, forcing us to get honest about the mess that we made in our lives. Only then is desperation a gift. And in the middle of all of that, after all that praying, because, look, I didn't have an illustrious criminal career, you all. That's why I went to the joint so many times. <laughs> right? And so I knew, based on my experience and my past, that I was getting ready to take another ride. But I'm going to tell you all something. This must have been the beginning of the change. For the first time in my life, I didn't worry about what was going to happen. I didn't worry about a baby was going to leave me. I didn't worry about how much time they was going to give me. I didn't worry about what was going to happen in the courtroom. I say to myself, for once, you need to try to figure out what you're going to do this time. Not to do the same thing again. So I stopped worrying. And I got sentenced. And I went down to do my time. And I say, I'm going to do everything within my power to try to place myself in a position where I could do something different. Because I had received a whole lot of help throughout my life. I had been to a whole lot of treatments. I had been in halfway houses. I had been in, in treatment facilities, long-term treatment, detoxes, all this kind of stuff. So I started to contact all kind of places. I'm like, God, help me. Help me go someplace so I don't have to go back to the mean streets of the west side of Chicago because it's tough out there. And I was thoroughly convinced that if I went back, nothing different was going to happen. Right? So as it turned out, when it was time for me to go home, they gave me my parole papers. They told me, Jerome, you're going right back to the west side of Chicago. If you go anyplace else, we're going to lock you up. The truth was, y'all, the only reason I came around Narcotics Anonymous in the first place was I wanted to stop going to jail. I didn't want to stop using 
And it wasn't until I got in treatment and was sitting around in treatment and they did an assessment on me and my counselor looked at me and he sounded like a prophet. He said, Jerome, we noticed something. The times in your life when you stayed away from drugs, you didn't go to jail. So like I say, they told me I had to parole right back to the west side of Chicago. And in my mind, I'm thoroughly convinced that if I go back, I'm going to do the same thing that I always did. My sponsor, sponsor, my grand sponsor said something. He said, Jerome, if recovery don't work everywhere, it don't work nowhere. And I'm sharing that for a reason, because it might be somebody in this room right now that may be forced to live in a place that might not be the best place for them to live. They may not have the means of leaving where they are. But I got to tell y'all the truth. Nobody never forced me to use. Out of all the times I used, nobody walked up to me and put a pistol to my head and said, Jerome, if you don't use, I'm going to kill you. I always made a personal decision to do what I did. If an influence came around me and I responded to that influence, it's because I had a reservation. Our step working guy says that reservations are usually tucked away in the back of our minds and we are not fully conscious of them. And I'm sharing that because at some point in my life I had to start to take responsibility for my decisions and my thoughts. That's the reason why when I share my experience, truth, and hope and tell my story, I don't talk about my childhood. It ain't because it ain't important. It ain't because that stuff don't influence me sometimes right now. Matter of fact, some real step work shows me that most of the time when I get caught up in some type of pattern, it's still based on some twisted belief system that I carry with me since I was a shorty. But the stuff that happened to me when I was a kid is no excuse for my behavior because I know many of people who went through the same stuff that I went through or more and didn't turn out like me, man. So it's time out for making excuses. Right? But I'm still on my way back to Chicago. (laughs) And I'm in my cell one night. And I had an anxiety attack. And I woke up. And I sat up in my bunk and I couldn't sleep. And I prayed and I prayed. And I said, God, what's going to happen to me? And I didn't get an answer. And the bottom line was I was going to have to find out on that day. And the day came. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. It was May the 8th, 2004. The sun was shining. The birds was chirping. I had a pocket full of money. And the spot where I lived that was the spot. It was right next to the playground where we played ball all day. 
where we barbecue, where we smoke, where we drank, where we did everything. It was a cesspool that I had to go back to. And I made a decision before I went back that I wasn't going nowhere without a plan. And sometimes you'll get a message from the strangest places, right? I had a friend who was incarcerated with me, right? He said this right here. He says, you're wrong. People like us, we ain't got no business hanging out after a certain time of the night. He said, Jerome, let me ask you a question. If you was a police officer and you rode up on four or five convicted felons just hanging out, what the heck would you think? <laughs> so the truth was I had abused my privilege to just hang out. And the only business I had out at that time of the night is I need to be on my way from point A to point B. I need to be on my way to work. I need to be on my way home to get some sleep because that's what decent, responsible, productive people do at that time of the night. So I went home. And everybody outside having a ball. And I'm standing in the window with my nose in the window. It reminded me of when I was a kid and I had done something I had no business doing, Kurt. And my guys would come to the door and say, can Jerome come out to play? <laughs> and I walked through the house. And as I was walking through the house, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a big, yellow, vanilla envelope. And I grabbed it. And I told y'all that I had contacted a whole lot of people before I left to come home, right? I had wrote this one particular facility and asked them for some help. And they wrote me back at home because they knew I would be at home. And they said, call us. We can help you. And I stayed in the middle of that cesspool where I was living at. For 21 days, for three weeks. And they scheduled an appointment for me to come and observe how they ran the facility to see if I want to come. And look, when I had the opportunity to come here, I told Michelle and them that, look, I'm happy, just like a kid on Christmas Eve, because you know Santa Claus is coming, right? And I had the same type of excitement that night. And I was so excited, I couldn't sleep, and I fell asleep, and I missed I missed my appointment. <laughs> and because all my life I had never did nothing that I was supposed to do, I was scared to death. And I called them, and I knew they weren't going to believe me, Michelle. And I told them what happened. And the social worker said, Jerome, calm down. Just come tomorrow.
And you know what the beauty of that was? If they really didn't believe me, if they had dropped me, guess what? I was clean. Matter of fact, that same cesspool that I told y'all that I lived in, check out the beauty of the cesspool. And this is important. I was able to walk to two meetings a day, five days a week, and get there within 15 to 20 minutes. I'm going to tell y'all why that was so important for me. I was talking to my man earlier today out there, and he was talking about he has eight months clean. And he was sharing with me about how the alienation of his illness was trying to make him feel like he wasn't comfortable here. I told y'all I had I didn't have an illustrious criminal career, so I spent a lot of time incarcerated. So I became somewhat antisocial. I was scared to death to talk to people. Because my only conversation was about how to work out, how to do time, how to trick off, how to hit a lick. How to sell dope. So at the end of the meetings, I would leave before the meetings would huddle up because I was scared to interact with anybody. And y'all think I ain't grateful to be here right now? Yeah. But nevertheless, I got one day left before I go to the facility. I'd have been there. They didn't approve me. Now it's time for me to leave. And I come up with a decision because I had a reservation about not moving back to the cesspool. So I did all I could to try to get all my information and my business taken care of and get my birth certificate and my ID and all that kind of stuff so I wouldn't have to come back to Chicago for nothing. And I went to the store that night. And I believe it's the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life, y'all. Because when I got almost to the store, I ran into my dear friend. And me and my dear friend hadn't seen each other in nearly 20 years. Because every time I would go to the joint, he would come home. And every time he would come home, I would go to the joint. And George, we talked for about 20 seconds. And then he popped the question, Jerome, let's get one. Here's the truth. It was a part of me that wanted that dope so bad that my knees started shaking, my stomach started turning. My nose started running, and I told myself, you've been clean two years, three weeks. You're going to treatment tomorrow. You owe yourself one. Been a good boy a long time, Jerome. And there was another part of me that didn't want it. How many of y'all remember the Flintstones? And Fred would be caught in a dilemma. 
And he'll be trying to make a decision. And while he's trying to make a decision, two friends will pop up on his shoulder. One on the right side with a halo. One on the left side with a pitchfork. And you know what was so cold about the two friends? They always showed up at the same time. It's a saying they used to say when I first came around this process. It's a little bit of good in the worst of us and a little bit of bad in the best of us. It was a part of me that wanted that dope and it was a part of me that didn't. So what I'm going to do? And all I did was walked and prayed. And I had to walk two blocks to get home. And by the time I placed my key in the door to go in the house. The thought, the desire was gone. One of the first things they tell us when we get around this process is don't leave till the miracle happens, right? What miracle are they talking about? They talk about getting the job back. They're talking about getting back with honey. They're talking about getting a whole lot of property and prestige and money and all of that. And the reading part of the chapter, What Can I Do? It speaks about the real miracle. It says that the real miracle happens when we realize that the need for drugs has somehow been lifted. and We have started to live. I thank God for that day because that day showed me something. It didn't make no difference how bad I wanted to use. If I call on a power greater than me and do the one thing that I never did before, Michelle, this time I walked away. Before, when I was calling on the power, I was still capping, Kurt. I'm putting my money in the slot and I'm praying to God and I'm wondering how come ain't nothing happening. Because you ain't doing your part, Jerome. I can call on God till the cows come home, y'all. If I don't do what I need to do, ain't nothing going to change. I went to that facility, y'all. I got involved in that process. I came out of that facility and I got me a sponsor. I didn't get no temporary sponsor because I didn't use temporarily, y'all. I thank God for my sponsor. He's no longer a member of the fellowship now. This was my second sponsor. Right? I'm going to tell y'all what he did to me. He gave me a very, very important lesson. First, <laughs> he called me. He said, Jerome, where you at? I told him I'm in the meeting. He said, come outside. Y'all ain't catch that. <laughs> but you asked me where I'm at if you knew I was in the meeting. He had his car parked where he was right in front of the door. When I walked out the meeting, 
I walk right into his car door. He said, sit down, Jerome, I want to tell you something. He shared with me about how he was caught up into pornography and sitting on the computer late nights and hooking up with women and and, and getting with them and getting back home at 3 o'clock and sleeping and getting back up at 5 and going to work and coming home talking about how tired he was only to get back on the computer and do it again. Then he took me to the literature. And he took me in a step working guide. And he took me to the bottom of the first step where it says the disease of addiction. And he made me read. And it says what makes us addicts is the disease of addiction, not the drugs, not our behavior. So, Jerome, when you go around here and find yourself doing something like I'm doing right now, I don't want you to tell nobody that it's no disease of addiction because the disease of addiction is not your behavior. As a matter of fact, the disease of addiction is not even concerned with your behavior because if it can control your thinking, you will behave just the way it wants you to. He said, Jerome, the things that you do is not what makes you an addict. Everybody on the planet sometimes does things that they're not supposed to do. What makes you an addict is that you'll start and won't stop. Most people can find a way to cut it off, even after they go through a few hardships, Kurt. They can usually get to a point where they realize, this ain't cool, I need to stop. Not me. He says the fact that you think things that you're not supposed to think is not what makes you an addict. Everyone thinks things that they're not supposed to think sometimes if they're honest. Your problem is once you start thinking, you will continue to think. When everyone else has stopped thinking, you will still be thinking. And he explained to me, Jerome, my problem right now is I'm constantly trying to treat the symptom of the disease of addiction, and I'm not dealing with the disease of addiction. I'm constantly trying to stop doing what I'm doing, but my head, my thinking haven't changed. He said, that's the reason you kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. When I came around this process, it was imperative for me to change my behavior, Kurt. I was doing things that was detrimental to me. And I quit doing the stuff that I was doing. And just because I quit doing the stuff that I was doing, I thought I was recovering, Kurt. (laughs) Not knowing that because I hadn't did nothing about what I was thinking, I was forced to go back to the same behavior because I had the same twisted information running around in my head. And it's in the literature, y'all. It's in the first step in the step working guide. They call it inner unmanageability. 
the unrealistic belief systems that we have about ourselves, others, and the world that we live in. If that stuff don't change, I can change my behavior. I can stop gambling. I can stop tricking off. I can be the sweetest guy you want to see. But just as much as I change, eventually I'm going to change back. The basic text says that we had no choice but to completely change our old ways of thinking or go back to using. Remember that counselor I told you all about earlier that sounded like a prophet to me? I'm going to give it to you all the way he gave it to me. First, they gave me an example. They showed two families that everything they owned had been wiped out in a natural disaster, a hurricane or something like that, right? And they showed the first family. And the wife was crying, and the husband was trying to comfort her, and the kids were in disarray. And they said, this is a terrible tragedy that has happened to us. We don't know how we're going to survive. And they stopped, and they went to the second family, and it was the exact same scenario. The wife was crying. The husband was trying to comfort her. The kids were in disarray. And they said, this is a terrible tragedy. We don't know how we're going to survive this. They say, but we believe that the same way we was blessed once, we'll be blessed again. They stopped the tape and they asked us one real simple question. Which of these families do you think survived the tragedy the easiest? And it was undoubtedly the second family because of their belief. He said, you're wrong. If you always think what you've always thought, you'll always do what you've always done. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. If you always get what you've always got, you'll always feel what you've always felt. And if you always feel what you've always felt, you'll always think what you've always thought. You know how our literature talks about the vicious cycle? The vicious cycle is not my behavior, not the things that I keep doing over and over again. The vicious cycle is the twisted thought process that tricks me into believing that it's okay for me to do that stuff. Even in our second step where it talks about insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. If you look in the step working guide in the very next paragraph, it says we do the same things over and over again, knowing that the results ain't going to be no different. It's my thinking, y'all. So, I got here, I did all I could to try to find some people to help me. You know how, how we talk about in our readings that we are under no surveillance at any time? I invite you all to please help me surveil me because I bear watching.
Because I still think the way I used to think sometimes, Kurt. Most of the time I don't do that stuff. But left unprotected, left unwatched. Ooh. So as much as I do all I can to protect me from me, the disease of addiction don't care what I do to try to protect me from me. I'm going to share with y'all something. Even all these wonderful things that I do to try to protect me from me, the disease of addiction is cold enough to attack me with that stuff. Right? We have three basic indispensable principles of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness that are the foundation of our recovery, right? Let me read something to y'all. This comes from Living Clean, the journey continues. The first part I'm going to share with y'all I'm not going to read. It says that the tools of the program can become weapons if we choose to use them that way. Even our step work can become an opportunity for us to abuse ourselves about our imperfections. I'm talking about working steps, Kurt, not to get no better, working steps to try to tell me how terrible of a person I am and be locked in self-loathing and self-pity again. You know what the problem is with self-pity? It's a game that I can only win by losing. Back to that honesty that's supposed to be so important to our process, right? Page 64. My understanding of honesty was so rigid, said one member, that I couldn't even be tactful to spare someone's feelings. One day I was caught in a conflict between two sponsees. One called and confessed that he'd done great harm to another who happened to be in my home at the time. Brutal honesty with either of them would have made the situation much worse. I learned to balance the principle of honesty with the principle of anonymity. Since then, I've learned to balance it with kindness and compassion as well. What happened when I become brutally honest? Aha! Brutal sounds like a very nice spiritual principle, don't it? What about when I become so open-minded that I'm willing to accept information from people who really ain't got no damn experience of what I'm trying to do? <laughs> like I go to my friend who ain't never had a healthy relationship in his life and figure out what should I do in mine. <laughs> Look. Willingness, right? I do my best not to be the guy to sit back and listen to people share their experience, strength, and hope and tear down what they share. But I'm a student of the literature of Narcotics Anonymous. So when you share something that's not in there, most of the time I know. And if I'm not sure, I got friends that will help me find it. So we're talking about willingness now, right? So an addict in my area, he's sharing his experience, strength, and hope. And he says, look. We can tell your willingness by your behavior. Right? Six step. 
Step working guy. Practicing the principle of willingness does not mean that we will act differently. It does not mean that we even have the capacity to. Some of us struggle with getting clean. And then some of us want to sit back and try to judge each other's willingness based on the fact that we don't stop using. Uh, it works high and wide in the 12 steps. Multiple relapses do not signify a lack of interest in recovery, nor does the model newcomer demonstrate, without a doubt, a certainty of making it. But here's the real question. See why I'm sitting around judging y'all? It's a hole in my step work. My step work look like Swiss cheese. <laughs> because here's the question that I refuse to ask me, Kurt. <laughs> Who dubbed you as the willingness officer in Narcotics Anonymous, Jerome? Why is it so important that you figure out why everyone is doing what they do? Matter of fact, if you're so smart and you're so brilliant and you know what everyone is doing, please tell me the Powerball number so I can get rich. <laughs> and look, we often talk about how insidious the disease of addiction is. When I'm caught in something like that, the disease of addiction does not have to be in cities because the work that I need to do to protect me from it, I can't never do it because I'm too busy saying, Kurt, you ain't doing it right. <laughs> then look, when I need to reach out for some help, I can't reach out to Kurt because Kurt ain't doing it right. Then I'm caught up on the service committee and ain't nobody doing what I think they should do. And I can't wait to meet Kurt to tell Kurt, Kurt, let me tell you what they're doing. <laughs> and they might be wrong with what they're doing. Who cares? Look, my grand sponsor again, he said, Jerome, you've been wrong so often. You should be careful when you think you're right. And then y'all look, even if I am right, I can alienate myself from this process. And people would rather see me going than coming. And then when I find myself in trouble, I can't reach out. Maybe I need to let someone else tell them, perhaps. Maybe I don't need to be the Narcotics Anonymous Police, right? <laughs> so one of the points I'm trying to get across to you all is that whether we believe it or not, there's nothing that we have that's sacred. The disease of addiction will attack us with everything from our principles. It will, it, will, it will attack me within the confines of my prayer life. It'll have me praying for some stuff that it knows that I don't have no ability to handle when I get it. <laughs> and God know I can't handle it neither, right? But he loved me enough to give it to me anyway to let me experience it. So I can come back and say, God, please take it back. (laughs) 
So I was talking to y'all earlier about going into step work for real, that when I find myself caught up in something now, that it really ain't got nothing to do with the disease of addiction. Matter of fact, let me read this. Just for the day, November the 13th. Not perfect. All of us had expectations about life and recovery. Some of us thought recovery would suddenly make us employable or able to do anything in the world we wanted to do. Or maybe we imagined perfect ease in our interactions with others. When we stop and think, we realize that we expected recovery to make us perfect. We didn't expect to continue making any mistakes, but we do. This is the sentence that I'm looking for, y'all. That's not the addict side of us showing through. That's us being human. The disease of addiction is not autonomous. It does not operate alone. It needs a willing partner. It needs for me to get involved in something and want something that's very natural a little too much. It's fine wanting a partner or a companion. But when I start getting outside of myself and violating my morals, my principles, and my values to get this partner, the disease will attach itself to that thought process and say, yes, Jerome, that's a wonderful idea. Let's go. I've been blessed enough to work my way out of a few behaviors that were plaguing me at some times in my recovery. When I first got in a position where I had the privilege of sharing my experience, strength, and hope quite a lot, at that same time, I was wrapped in lust, pornography, anything that was sexual. But I was still able to deliver, deliver a message of recovery. But here's the sad part. And this is why we need to be careful of judging other people because sometimes we'll look and they share and we'll say, they, they ain't living what they share. Doesn't make a bit of difference. If the information I'm giving you is true, you can use it to help you. But here's the saddest thing on the planet. Being able to carry a message to everybody but the person in the mirror. And finishing sharing your experience, strength, and hope, and people hugging you, saying, I got so much out of you. And I'm saying, man, I wish I could get something out of me. (laughs) But even when I was caught up in that behavior, that didn't have nothing to do with no disease of addiction, y'all. I remember something during the step work, Kirk, an event I had forgot all about. I had been a freaky little kid. Listen, y'all, I'm giving y'all the truth now. When I was five or six years old, I had a sister. And my sister, a lot of her friends would come over and they would bring their little sisters and their little nieces. And most of them was two or three years younger than me. 
And I would wait until they went to the bathroom and sneak in the bathroom on them, Kurt. And I had come out of that type of behavior for some years. And all of a sudden it resurfaced and I ran around talking about the disease got me doing all this stuff. Wasn't no disease of addiction. That was an unresolved issue. It was an unresolved issue that God slid over to allow you to progress in your process that you never went back and touched. And I'm not going to open the literature, just what it talks about in step seven. Every defect ain't removed, y'all. Some of that stuff is slid over so we can move forward. If we don't go back to get it, it's going to show up. And it's going to say something they used to say in the playground, Kirk, when they used to play tricks on us. It say, na 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 So, those behaviors, the disease ain't trying to attack me there, right? So where is it really trying to attack me at, Kirk? Earlier, we did the clean time celebration, didn't we? We had a wonderful time. Didn't we? Share something with y'all. And I'm not going to pull the literature out this time either. This comes out of Living Clean, the journey continues in the section on setting ourselves apart. It says, we can't see how our addiction is affecting us because the destruction looks different than before. So whatever behavior I find myself caught up in right now, Kurt, because it don't look as bad as it did when I was handcuffed to that wall in that jail cell in Cook County Jail praying for God to take my life. I think that it ain't that bad. And I got a little bit of recovery too, y'all. And here's a side effect of recovery that we forget about. Recovery makes me appear like I'm normal. I look like I'm okay. The people who know me and don't know nothing about my past and don't know nothing about me being in this process, I can operate and do just fine. They don't know nothing wrong with me, Kurt. Until I stop doing what the heck I'm supposed to do. Stop calling my sponsor. Stop working the steps. Stop looking at me. And then them people say something they used to say when I was a kid. I used to get so tired of them saying it. Something wrong with that boy. <laughs> Look. It says it is possible for us to lull ourselves to sleep in this program and think that we are still awake. In the second step in the step working guide, it says, if we've been clean for a while, a new level of denial can make it difficult for us to see the insanity in our lives. Right? The next sentence says that the living skills that we gain in recovery can become a part of our denial structure. 
The stuff that I've been picking up here, Kirk. Not the stuff that I've been dragging around with me. This new information that you're picking up now can become a part of your denial structure. How? They want to make sure we don't miss it. They say we start to tell ourselves we're older now. We're wiser now. We're more mature now. Then, remember I told y'all my buddy popped a question on me? We popped a question on ourselves. Here it is for us with some time, y'all. Real addicts don't stay clean this long, do they? I start to believe that the fact that I've been clean this long, maybe I wasn't that bad. They gave us one more sentence to make sure we didn't miss it. It says that our own clean time becomes our reservation. As wonderful as our clean time celebration was, y'all, the disease was applauding too. Because it knows there's a distinct possibility that just because you've been around here that long, you might start to believe that some of the things you're doing, you ain't got to do them no more. Why do you think the basic text says that complacency is the enemy of members with substantial clean time? All of us can become complacent, but why do you think they talked about the members with substantial clean time? Because the more clean time I have, the more that I have for the disease to attack me with. That ain't meant for us to get scared, y'all. That's meant to exemplify something that my sponsor told me a long time ago. The longer you, you stay in this process, Jerome, the more work you need to do. Because you run the risk of believing that just because you survived a few situations and circumstances, that it was you instead of God that got you out of that stuff. So, I would love to tell y'all that I'm recovering so well that I can always protect me from me. That's not true. Sometimes I ain't on, I ain't on my post like I'm supposed to be, Kirk. That's why I invite y'all in to help me. That's why I need help. I'm getting ready to go sit down somewhere, y'all. There's a couple of more things I want to share before I go sit down. One of them comes from the chapter Recovery and Relapse in our basic text. No members. It is important to remember that the desire to use will pass. We never have to use again, no matter how we feel. All feelings will eventually pass. Not so new members. It is important to remember that the desire to act out in whatever way, whatever way you want to act out will pass. We never have to act out again no matter how we feel. All feelings will eventually pass. 
That last one didn't come out the literature, y'all. And I always like to close like this. But first, I want to tell one more story to the newcomers before I do that. I meant to do this here, too. You know, uh, the very first time I was introduced to the Fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous, I was in a treatment facility inside of an institution. For some reason, y'all, I could never get clean unless I went to an institution first. Being jailed. I always had to go to jail first. I wasn't going to get clean unless I went to jail. And there was a counselor in there who I had great respect for. And there was four or five of us sitting around and we was talking and we was talking about relapse. And she walked up and she heard us. And she said, counting detoxes, residential treatments, treatments in and out of institutions. She said, how many times y'all think I done been? And we guessed and we guessed and we guessed for about five or ten minutes. And we came up with all kinds of numbers. Two, three, five, ten, seven. Kept striking out. She said, Counting detoxes, residential treatments, treatments in and out of institutions. I've been 37 times. She said, I once stayed clean for seven years, and I used, and I went back out and stayed out almost two years. She said, as I stand in front of you right now, I have 14 years clean. She said, I'm not telling you that it's okay to relapse. She said, I'm telling you that I see this thing just like a basketball game. The most shots you take... The more chances it is, one day you're going to make a basket. Last thing I want to share with y'all comes out of our fifth edition of the Basic Text. It's a personal story entitled, I Was Unique. And it says, I found a new home inside of the Fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous. My life again has meaning. I found that I have but one calling in life. That is to carry the message to the addict who still suffers. I'm so grateful to God and that I may do this today. I have found that you are just like me. I am no longer better than or less than. I feel a real love and camaraderie inside of the Narcotics Anonymous Fellowship. My great spiritual awakening has been that I'm an ordinary addict and I'm not unique. There are still those who refuse to join us and take the path we have chosen because they feel that they are unique. They may die, but may God bless them too. This is the saddest thing about this disease called addiction, y'all. Some of us are going to try to spend the rest of our lives proving that we can do something that we've already proven that we can't do successfully. I love y'all. I thank y'all for being so gracious. It's been my privilege to come here and share with you all and experience this. And like the great prophet Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, (laughs) I'll be back.